Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Good morning, Inspired Church. How y'all doing? 11 a.m. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Can we just give Jesus... Give Jesus a praise just for a moment where you're at. Come on, just give him, just take a moment to give him glory. Man, that's a little terrible. Let's get that. If you were praising me, I can understand that, but let's just give him a little bit more. God, you are good. You are faithful. You are holy. You are true. Even when men let us down, you don't let us down. Amen. Even when we are failed by those closest to us, you don't fail us. Good morning. Um, thank you all for being here this morning. I want to just take a, a brief moment and thank, thank you for being flexible during our season of putting up uh, the mask mandates. If you've been with us as a mobile church for the last, since the pandemic has started, you know that we have always abided by the guidelines of our county, right, wrong, or different. Um, we, don't, we don't argue with them. We, we, um, we do um, what they've asked us to do. And, uh, and for the last four weeks, you guys have been flexible. I appreciate that so much. My heart thanks you for that. Um, and now we're thanking God that the surge um, has lifted. And, um, and though we continue to recommend uh, masks, um, you are welcome um, to also lay them down at the cross. <laughs> and, um, and so <laughs> thank you all. Thank you all for your flexibility. And I know that all the hearts and minds in this room, y'all, we all got something to say. But at the end of the day, thank you for your flexibility and working with us. And I want you to know we're going to continue to be that church. So um, um, that's just what we do. And um, again, thank you, but definitely glad to see your smiling faces this morning. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, you know that we've started a new sermon series called Summer Gardens. Um, And we are determined to plant supernatural gardens inside of our natural hearts. Amen. And that is only something that the spirit of God can produce inside of us. It's not a work of the flesh. You can't produce these things. This, these fruit can't be produced on your own. It's something that is supernatural and only the spirit can do in you and through you. This is a critical series and I'm actually excited because there's going to be maybe for the next five weeks, I'm going to be able to sit and receive. Um, we have pastor Danny preaching next Sunday and Yes, and Pastor Andy will be preaching, and uh, Catherine Castrance will be preaching, and she gets all the, you know, sorry, Pastor Andy and Danny, but we know who they want to hear. It's not you. Uh, uh, And uh, Pastor Roger, okay, will be preaching, and... Ah, there you go. And, uh, and I will be in the front row receiving. And, um, and so I just, I, I can't wait. Uh, this is a critical series. Uh, I knew it was going to be uh, uh, critical, maybe not critical. I knew it was going to be good uh, before we started. But as we started to get into it, I realized how critical it is. And so maybe before we get into today's uh, portion of the message, I could just tell you why it's critical. Because the fruit of the Spirit validates the credibility of your witness. Right, we ask the question, are you attractive to others? Do you attract, not, not, not Instagram attractive, I don't mean like what you look like, but is your life attracting others to Jesus or repelling them away? And so the question is, well, how do, how do I become attractive? Well, by, by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's a critical series because the Spirit's fruit doesn't just validate the credibility of our witness, but it validates the genuineness of your faith. Uh, I often sit with a lot of people who ask me, Pastor Phil, how do I know I'm saved? Like, how can I be sure? And the answer is, well, one way you can be sure, if you put your faith in Jesus, a result of that is the production of this fruit. And so if you're not seeing this fruit being produced in you, you should check to see if you're in the faith. Finally, number three, it validates the credibility of our witness, the genuineness of our faith. And of course, number three, it helps us understand that the presence of conflict is a good thing inside of you. Are you at war with yourself? Do you feel the fruit of the spirit and then the desires of your flesh warring? Like if there is warfare in you, that's a good sign. Uh, what you should be afraid of is when there's no war or when you've just kind of given yourself completely over to sin and you've agreed with it and partnered with it. So it's a critical series. And so what I like to do is I like to open up to the text uh, that we've been from the very beginning. We'll have it for you quickly on the screen. You don't have to go here right away. There's another text I'll have you go to a little bit later, but let me just lay it down. This is kind of the, um, this is the text that is launching this entire series. And hopefully by the end of this series, you will be um, either able to memorize it or sick of it. Just kidding. We can never get sick of the word of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, you get the point. The point is, is hopefully that it is reverberating in your heart. That was a mistake. Cut that out. Edit that out. Sometimes my mouth gets me into trouble. It goes faster in my flesh. Anyways, Galatians, let's just get to the Bible. Galatians 5, 16. We're going to read that verse, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22. Um, if you want the whole context, you can go back to our first uh, sermon on love, and that was a couple of weeks ago. But Galatians 5, 16 says this, walk by the spirits. Why? Uh, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I'm so thankful that Paul, when he says walk by the spirit, just doesn't leave it there. So it's like some abstract thing that we all have to guess what that looks like. But then he goes on to describe what it looks like to walk by the spirit. Here it is. Verse 22, he says this, the fruit of the spirit. So what the, fruit, what the spirit produces inside of a life that is walking in partnership with the spirit is this. The fruit of the spirit is, are you ready? Love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Here's what I love about this particular text. Notice he does not say fruits. It is singular, not plural, which means you can't look at this and be like, well, I got that, but I ain't got that one. Right? If the spirit is present, all of these elements should be being produced in your life. You don't get to pick and choose, right? This isn't the gifts of the spirit, right? In which somebody could have this gift and you could have this gift and we're a body and we complement each other. No, no, no. If you are a follower of Jesus, all these fruits, this cluster should be manifested, should be manifested in your life. Amen? So today we're moving on last week from joy to peace. And if you notice, a lot of these fruit are interconnected anyway. Um, but today we are talking about peace. Amen? Amen. If you're like me, you probably connect peace with the absence of something. 
Uh, it can be the absence of conflict, right? Peace in your marriage. Amen? Anybody need a little peace in your marriage? Don't raise your hand. Just agree with me in your heart. <laughs> we make up and we agree to argue no more, right? So, so the absence of arguments. <laughs> or it can go from an interpersonal to international, right? We sign peace treaties to agree to war no more. And so we, the absence of war. We even seek the absence of noise when we just want a little Babe, give me, I want some peace and quiet. Amen, somebody agreed with that. But the supernatural fruit of peace is not just the absence of something, it's the presence of something. And so what I want to do today is I want to try and teach a little bit. Typically, I'm preaching. The last two weeks is very preachy. You know I'm preaching because I'm spitting. The veins popping out. Typically, I'm teaching. Um, there's going to be a little bit more emphasis uh, uh, in slowing down. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to teach a little bit of a, of a holistic, comprehensive, biblical understanding of peace, okay? And so uh, uh, the supernatural fruit of peace, again, is not just the absence of something, but it is the presence of something. And this is what the Hebrew authors of the Old Testament text define as, you've heard of the Hebrew word, maybe it's the only Hebrew word you know, shalom, shalom. Now, shalom is the absence of hostility, but it is also the presence of wellness. It's the presence of wholeness. It's the presence of prosperity. Like a complicated Lego set with no missing bricks or, or, or a finished puzzle with over 5,000 pieces, shalom represents a perfect state of completeness with nothing missing and nothing lacking. This is why the concept of shalom is a major theme throughout the storyline of the Bible. Like there's a meta-narrative in the scriptures. A lot of time we get lost in a particular story, but we have to realize that the particular story is part of a bigger story and you see it beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation God creates a perfect world didn't he call it good God created and he said it was what very good it was a perfect world in which the God of the universe declared good a perfect world lacking nothing shalom but immediately in Genesis 3 man we always mess it all up Man rebels, sin comes in, and shalom is disrupted. And then for the rest of the story, God initiates a plan to restore shalom. This is why the prophets call the Messiah the Prince of Peace. This is why when Jesus was born, the angels said, glory to God. They sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And this is why during the life of Christ, you see Jesus ministering the gospel of peace. It's in Christ, in Jesus, that he came to deal with sin and restore shalom. So that by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we might have peace with God, peace with others, and peace within. Amen? So, true to form, I'm going to try to preach three sermons in one and get you out of here in time for lunch. And most of you know that doesn't happen too well. But um, peace with God, peace with others, and peace within. Amen? Amen. Y'all tracking with me? Yeah. So let's pray. Pray for me as I pray for you, and we will jump in. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for your peace. I pray that as we learn about your peace, that you would do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, take the text and illuminate it to every heart and mind in this building. Only you can take the text and present it in a way in each heart and mind that they would leave out of here with something from you, not from man. Lord, I pray that good seed would fall on good soil so that we can continue to produce supernatural gardens in our natural hearts, supernatural fruit in our natural gardens. And so I just ask that you would be with me, be with us, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Peace with God. Peace with God. Humanity's great need is not world peace. It's not even inner peace, but it begins with peace with God. And to be honest, the moment that I say that you need peace with God, it's actually an offensive truth. When I tell you that you need peace with God, that means that uh, I am assuming or insinuating that you are at war with God. And in our pluralistic culture, that is offensive to be told that I am an enemy of God. Yet, the Bible teaches that before you were in Christ, you were by nature an enemy of God. Now, some of you might debate and argue with that and say, well, what do you mean? I've always loved God. Some of you in this room might say, what do you mean that if I didn't have Jesus in my life, that I didn't? I've always loved God. I love God. What about people of other religions? They love God. But the reality is, though you may have or someone may have said that they love God, the truth is, is they didn't love the God of the Bible. They loved their own version of God. And so the God that you love was the God of your dreams, the God of your goals, the God of your ambitions, the God who submitted to your definitions of right and wrong. And so this God that we said we loved was not the God of the Bible, but a God that we made in our own image. The reality is, is if we begin to learn about this God, some of us are repulsed by him. Some of us can't stand his laws and his precepts and the reality that there is wrath stored up against the unrighteous. And so you can easily see that if you're not in Christ or before you were in Christ, that you are at war. You're an enemy with God. Right? Sin alienates us from God. Our rebellion invites God's justifiable, righteous wrath. That's the offensive part of the scriptures. But, and I love this, despite our status as God's enemies, God pursued us in Christ. I love what Pastor Alistair Begg said about God. He called God the best of enemies. Now, on that day, when you stand before him, you don't want to be his enemy. But in this life, he is the best of enemies. Why? Because it is God who loves his enemies. It is God who pursues his enemies. It is God that wins his enemies, redeems his enemies. And it is God, when his enemies wanted nothing to do with him, laid his life down in Christ. 
And so while you were enemies of this God, you want nothing to do with this God, you denied this God, you rebelled against this God, he passionately pursued you in his son, Jesus Christ. So the critical question becomes, how can I make peace with God? How can I make peace with God? And the answer is morbid in the beginning. You can't. You can't. There's nothing you can do in your own flesh to make peace with an eternal God that you have sinned against, a perfect God that you have sinned against. That's the bad news. But the good news is Christ can do what you can't do. And so we are reconciled back to God. What is reconciliation? You ever broke up with someone and then you were reconciled, right? Some of you like, never want to be reconciled with that guy. Maybe it was a friendship, right? Like you were apart, you were separated, but then you were reconciled. This is what Christ does. He brings the enemies together. He reconciles us back to God. Peace with God was secured for us on the cross of Christ. Listen, Peace with God is not found in philosophy or religion. Buddha or Muhammad can't give you this peace. You can't stretch and breathe this peace into existence with yoga. It's not a construct or a concept. But the Bible says in Romans 5.1, pay attention to this because this is the words of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A robust peace, a comprehensive peace, a a kind of peace that is not just the absence of something, but the presence of someone. And when that someone is present, the result of being with that someone, the fruit of that is wellness, wholeness, completeness, shalom. Are you with me? You see, in Christ... There is the absence of sin, but the presence of righteousness. In Christ, there is the absence of shame and guilt, but the presence of freedom from bondage. In Christ, there is the absence of wrath. In Christ, we no longer need to fear judgment of God. In Christ, there is the absence of eternal punishment in hell, but there is the presence of eternal pleasures in heaven. Because Christ sacrificially gave himself, we are no longer God's enemies, but we are God's friends. We are no longer foreigners, but citizens in heaven. We are no longer orphans, but adopted sons and daughters who have been filled with the spirit of God and given an inheritance, an unspeakable, unimaginable inheritance in heaven. Somebody bless Christ. Peace with God. No other peace can deal with the deep restlessness of your soul. No other foundational peace can settle so deeply and root so deeply into your soul that when everything else is being shaken, you know that you have peace with God in Christ. And to be honest, until you have this peace, no other peace matters. No other peace lasts. And so we move from the foundational peace, peace with God to peace with others. We don't like this one, right? Like the first one, okay, we can get there, right? It's the peace with God thing. Okay, we got that. But it's, then I got to deal with others. 
right? Like if it was just peace with God and in Christ, we, you know, some of that's offensive, but we can make it work. God is beautiful. He's good. But then you're telling me that I got to have peace with other people. Like, but if you look at the fruit of the spirit, right, you taste it and you sense it and you eat it, right? And so the fruit is not just for yourself. As we were talking with some of the team, the fruit is meant to be seen and tasted. You don't practice peace in solitude. But peace with others, like you don't, you don't practice patience just by yourself, right? Who's going to test your patience more? Probably the people you're with the most. Okay. Peace, peace with others, right? And if it ain't your husband and wife, it's the church. It's folks at church that test you. I test you. I'm sure I come up here and say things and it tests you. <laughs> Peace with others, peace with others. On September 30th, 1938, Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, announced that he had reached an agreement with Adolf Hitler, and both sides agreed that there would be no possibility of war between their nations. One year later, Germany invaded Britain. And as evil as we believe Hitler to be, This is the reality of humanity. This is our history. This is the history of humanity. Treaties are signed, and before the ink dries, they're broken. Every year, rumors of wars erupt. World War III trends on Twitter. You ever wake up and World War III is trending? Maybe I'm the only guy. It's like, what's going on? There's even a doomsday clock created by a group of atomic scientists to warn us and perhaps deter us from nuclear war. And as of now, according to their clock, humanity is 100 seconds until midnight. And to be honest, like that's scary, but it shouldn't surprise us who, are in, who understand the word. Why? Because a world that is in conflict with its creator is a world that will be at war with itself. I mean, shalom, it's been disrupted since the beginning. That's what our Bible tells. We have a meta-narrative that tells us why and how. Shalom has been disrupted since the beginning, right? We see it in in the garden in Genesis 3. And then it didn't take long because in Genesis 4, we get the first murder. We get sibling rivalry. And we get a murder. And so shalom is broken. And then we see murder take place. And though the world is constantly at war because of sin, it's the church. All the church. It's the church that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ that should be bearing the supernatural fruit of the spirit and embodying peace. Listen, the same blood that has the power to make peace with God has the power to make peace with others. This is why Paul teaches the church that Jesus himself is our peace who has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. This is why Paul urges the church to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, tells the church, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who are peacemakers. So if Christ died to bring us peace, why do we have so many conflicts in the church? Think about that. 
Why are people arguing? Why are there people not talking? If Christ's blood has purchased our peace, why, why do we bicker and divide in the body of Christ? Well, because you're petty. Maybe it's just me. I'm petty. We have remaining flesh. Right? Until we're on the other side of glory, we have to deal with this. But that's why Paul says you have to fight to maintain the bond of peace. Sometimes it's not easy. There are people right now who love Jesus that I don't even talk to anymore. Refuse to have a conversation with me. Maybe you're like that. Can you think about how could two people who submit themselves to the blood of Jesus and who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ not talk to each other? You know, one day I envisioned being in heaven and that's not gonna matter. One day I envisioned being in heaven and like all of that drama, that personal baggage and pettiness and hurt and will just dissolve in the beauty of eternity and we'll just embrace and be like, you're my brother. And you know what? Not only that, but I think that we might be shed a tear and we, we might feel in that moment, and I know there's no tears in heaven, but he does say he'll wipe tears, right, away. And so they'll never come back. But that first tear might be the heartbreak to realize that we trivialize the blood of Jesus on earth. Like we elevated personal preference and pettiness above the work of Christ on the cross. Am I the only one? Y'all feel that? James, the brother of Jesus, tells us why Christians can be so petty. He says, your passions are at war within you. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Remember, Jesus says, you could, just, you could even hate your brother in here and commit murder. He, James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Jealousy, envy, rivalry. Listen, when we elevate personal preferences and selfish ambitions, when we major in the minors and minor in the major, figure out what that means. When we allow petty divisions to cause dissensions, then we have trivialized the precious blood of Jesus and we look just like the world. I went off on a tangent at 9 a.m., so I'm going to do you a favor and not go there. But, I, you know, well, I'm going to go there. I used to be a server at Chili's here in Union City. Forgive me if you've ever sat in my section. And if you'll notice, if you go out to eat, uh, there are kiosks. There are these kind of stations. So when the servers take your order. Hi, how are you? What would you like? You know, I'm working for that tip. Then we go back to the kiosk and we put your order in. But what you don't know is that when we all get there, we're like, hey, you go check out table six. Just walk by. You know what I mean? Like we have just all these comments and just things go on at that kiosk that shouldn't go on. Things are said that shouldn't be said. I've repented of that many years ago. Um, 
again, I need y'all to laugh, guys. I'm just being honest. Like, my goodness, you guys are throwing stones at me here. I thought we were a gracious church. <laughs> okay, so um, it's almost like it's a force field. <laughs> you know, it's like right in the middle. If you ever work, like, it's like right in the middle of the restaurant, but the minute you get there, you're like being all petty or whatever. Maybe not. Maybe you love everyone. Who knows? Maybe I'm the only guy with that problem. But, you know, it's, it's funny because, the, you know, you're smiley here. And then here you got all kinds of things to say, you know, and I feel like the church is like that. And I feel like, like social media has become the new place where you could be all like, oh, God bless you, brother. Like, oh, grace and mercy, peace. And then you're up there and you're holding your life, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I wish we could create, I mean, there's just in this world we live in now, I feel like, man, I'm asking, how do I disciple people on social media now? Because it's like two personas. It's like, man, it's hard for me to catch you in live because then I'll call it out, but I'm seeing it and watching. And I'm like, man, how can I sit down and be like, hey, like, where's, where's the fruit of the spirit? Okay, this is the tangent, and I got to get back on here. Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. Do you see that? Yeah. The text, that's, that's, that's important. The Sermon on the Mount stuff. The problem is in the church, and I'm talking to church folk in here. So if you don't go to church, this is your opportunity just to point and be like, yep. The problem is, instead of peacemakers, we have troublemakers. Some of us, hear me out. And I want to be um, sensitive here. Some of you have been raised in chaos. And so you're used to warfare. Let this hit you for a minute. Some of you have been raised in places where you had no choice but to be defensive. Listen, and now that's just your nature. Why did I say I wanna be sensitive? Because I could rattle on you right now. You should have the peace and you should, but I wanna say before I get there, because I will rattle a little bit. Before I get there, I I, I wanna be compassionate, understand and help you to awaken and see that your default nature has become a, a person of warfare. And to the point where if, if there is peace, you, something, you make something wrong. Wow. Wow. You just fight. Good. Good but the supernatural fruit of the spirit, when you gave your life to Christ, yeah. Yeah. yes, there was trauma and yes, there's pain and yes, remaining flesh doesn't always all go away, but you be aware and you allow him to produce peace and you may ask the Lord to do a work inside of you, become aware of this. Okay, I gotta go, I gotta go. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But I think we have a lot of troublemakers in the body of Christ. I think it's important for you to ask yourself, you know, am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? When you post, am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Think about it. Peace with God, peace with others, and finally, peace within. This is your opportunity to grab your Bibles. (laughs) So you're like, wow, I promise you we're almost finished. I don't think we're just starting. It's like, that was a heck of an intro, Pastor Phil. Uh, Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter four. I promise you though, you guys are cruising through. Uh, that wasn't an intro. You're, all, you're, you're there. You're almost there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. We'll wait for you to get there. We'll have it for you on the screen, but 
lights are turned up. If you want to go on your Bible apps, you're, feel free to do that as well. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, verse 6, I'm sorry, through 7. It's a pretty well-known verse. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll recognize it. Philippians 4, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Verses 6 through 7. Hey Amen, I hear you. I hear the glory. I may not see it, but I hear it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And we'll have it for you on the screen as well. We're having our own conversation over here. Um, and, and the scripture reads like this. Do not... <laughs> Many of us, the minute we see do not, like, well, I'm going to do it, right? <laughs> right? Some of you, right? This is who you are. You're a rebel. Uh, but this is the inspired text, okay? Uh, uh, scripture says, do not be anxious about anything. Man, are you sure about that, Apostle Paul? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see that? Now, I want, I want to make an important distinction, okay? In the beginning, we talked about peace with God. Notice Paul says, peace of God. There's a difference. Peace with God is objective. Peace with God is based on the unchanging reality of the cross. Peace with God is based on a historical fact that while you were still enemies of God, Christ historically, factually put on flesh, came to the earth, put on the cross, was slaughtered on our behalf, and as a result reconciled us back to the Father. That's an objective fact. You can't, circumstances and situations don't change that peace. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, are you with me? The moment you said, I'm not going to trust in my own works, I'm not going to trust in my own ways, but I'm going to put my trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross, the moment you did that, your status in heaven permanently changed. The good judge of all of the universe went from saying, not, went from saying guilty to not guilty, not based on your works, but based on the work of Christ. And there's nothing you can do to change that. You see that? And so peace with God is an objective truth, unchanging, settled. In Christ, you're safe and secure. But peace of God is subjective. It can be accessed in anxious situations. In fact, the word anxious in the text, I think it's important to also make this distinction. It does not mean the normal, regular concern you have because you love something or someone. Right? Like a, there is a normative worry that we have, right, for our children, for our spouses, for our cat, our dog. Right? There's a, there is a normal worry in life for our, our, our parents, our family. There is a friend's uh, this, this word anxiousness is not referring to that normative worry. The, the Greek word actually means to be torn to pieces. 
It's a kind of debilitating worry due to some kind of maybe unforeseen circumstance. It's what can happen when you're awaiting the results of a biopsy and you're not sure if it's cancer. It's the obsessive overthinking about the finances that keep you awake all night. It's the phone call that makes your heart stop. The worst case scenario being realized, the unnecessary fears produced by the news or the intensified worries about your children. Paul is saying that genuine followers of Jesus have produced in them a supernatural antidote to this kind of anxiety and worry. This is the peace of God. And here's what I want to do in our final time together. I want to lay the peace of God, inner peace, peace within, and I want to lay it out in four ways. Number one, the peace of God can be accessed by prayer, demonstrated through poise, reassured with providence, and comforted in protection. How you like that, Roger? I got some peas in there just for you, brother. I'm always thinking about you. Accessed by prayer, demonstrated through poise, reassured with providence, and comforted in protection. Now, I got to give some love here to Pastor Tim Keller, who really inspired this section as I was reading some articles and looking at some ways that he works through this text. But the peas are mine. Just kidding. <laughs> Maybe not. Number one, the peace of God is accessed by prayer. And I want you to know that I don't ever want to just give you my opinion. Otherwise, this is a TED Talk. You don't come to church to hear my opinion. You come to church to hear the word. I knew my Patty would clap on that. And so some of you are like, well, that's real creative. But where did it come from? Right? Where did it come from? And so I want to show you, number one, access by prayer. Well, the scripture says, he says, don't be anxious for anything. He says, but... In everything, pray. Right? That's the text. He says, prayer and supplication. And so, in response to being blindsided, right? Our remaining flesh wants to worry. If you're anything like me, I'll go to pieces. That's, that explains me when something happens. In fact, I always tell people, and I'm just going to say, I tell right whenever someone says, hey, can we talk? I'm always like, yo, like, uh, you okay? Really good? You, you know what I mean? Because like, and, it's, and some people are like, you're so sweet. You're checking on me. No, I'm trying to get my anxiety. Okay. I'm just bearing it all. And you guys got to laugh or something with me because I feel just real naked up here. You know what I mean? In response to being blindsided, our remaining flesh can, can't help but worry. Yeah. So how do we quiet the flesh and access the supernatural fruits the answer is prayer. Prayer. I know if you walk into Barnes and Noble, is that still open? I don't even, I'm not even sure. Yeah, okay. I know you walk into the peace section of Barnes and Nobles, it might tell you some techniques. But the scripture says it's by prayer. And I've told this story before, but I think it's necessary again. Monks are a group of people who have decided to leave the world behind and commune together in a monastery. And they work around rhythms of life, rhythms of work, rhythms of fasting, rhythms of prayer, 
realism studying scripture. And this is what they do together over and over again. And monasteries are known for their bells. And what happens is, is that throughout the day, the bell rings. And the bell is a call to prayer. So that anytime the monks are walking throughout their day and they hear the bell, the bell indicates that it's time for them to drop everything they're doing and enter into prayer. And so a monk could be working and when the bell rings, they stop their work. They leave their work unfinished. That's a word in itself. They trust in the sovereignty of God and they go into prayer or they could be in a conversation. But when the bell rings, they stop the conversation and they enter into prayer. This is what's known as a monastic bell. And what I want to submit to you is that anytime you feel an overwhelming worry and anxiety, think of it as the monastic bell calling you to prayer. Think of your debilitating anxiety as an invitation from the Spirit to stop what you're doing and to pray. In fact, a lot of us, whenever that bell rings, we pick more things up and do more. Some of us are busy bodies, not because we're busy by nature, but because in being busy, we can escape anxiety. But the scripture doesn't teach escapism. The scripture doesn't teach us to deny reality. The scripture says you will live in a reality where you will have anxiousness and worry, but never fear there is the presence of God. And so when worry rings its bell, it is an invitation for you to enter into prayer. Now watch. Prayer moves us from panic to poise. There's something about prayer that moves us from panic to poise. And so we go from accessed by prayer to demonstrate it through poise. You know, where'd you get that in the text, Pastor Phil? Well, the scripture says, do not be anxious, right? Don't be, in other words, don't panic, don't worry, don't fret, don't become distraught, don't, don't allow your emotions to be torn into pieces and turn you into a person that can't think straight, and so the opposite of that is a person who's poised under pressure and equilibrium of the soul, an ability to submit the scattered emotions under the cross of Jesus. I love the word poise. It communicates composure in the midst of chaos. Everything could be unraveling around us, but to be poised is to be not easily rattled in the rattling. To be poised is the result of submitting your emotions to the spirit in moments of prayer. So we walk into prayer in panic, but we come out of prayer with poise. And if you're a pragmatic person like I am, I still wanna know how, that's not good enough. It's still abstract, how? Well, the good news is the text tells us because it's in prayer where the spirit begins to reassure us of providence. Where'd you get that one, Pastor Phil? Glad you asked. Reassure with providence. I want you to notice in verse six, 
Paul tells us, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything. He says prayer and supplication. And then he says this, with thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say, with thanksgiving, making your requests known. Now that's counterintuitive because typically you don't say thank you until somebody answers your request. Like when somebody gives me something, my response is thank you. But Paul is saying not so in Christ, not so in this kind of prayer that overcomes anxiousness. In this kind of prayer, you step in, you make your request, and before God even answers, you give thanks. Yeah, good. Say, well, why? What does that do? Well, let me tell you what it does. Spiritually, it conditions your heart. It retools and retrains what you've been used to. It creates a new habit. You might say, well, what is that new habit? What is that new conditioning taking place? It conditions you to not look at what you want, but to look at what God has for you. And so while you're thanking God for the request that you're not even sure he's going to answer yes or no to, you're saying, even though I want this to happen, I trust that whatever happens, that's providence, you're in control. That's deep. There's a habit of thankfulness that before the answer comes, it teaches us to trust in God's sovereignty. Y'all with me? I mean, what does Romans 8.28 tell us? Romans 8.28 tells us this. All things, some things, a few things, certain things, all things. I used to have a passage that all means all. All things work together for the bad, no, for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purposes, which means the providential sovereignty of God ensures that whatever is happening to you is for your good. And so when I thank God, before he answers the request, I am training my heart to submit to his providence and his answer, not mine. So we learn to trust him in thanking him and whatever he decides to do. In thanking during the request, we acknowledge that God is good even if the situation is bad. We acknowledge that God is good even if he permits something that we don't want or don't like. Oh, I didn't think you guys would like that. We learn that in Christ, even the bad things, the terrible things, the horrible things are all working themselves out in my favor. And notice I said, we learn this because it ain't natural. It's counterintuitive. This messed me up and I want to mess you up. So I'm going to share it with you. You can thank me later. (laughs) Something Pastor Timothy Keller reflected on that messed me up God's perspective he imagines God's perspective God telling us this my child whenever a child mine of mine makes a request I always give that child what he or she would have asked for if they knew what I know oh that's really good but like okay I don't know if I believe that though my child 
God, this is God talking to you. Whenever a child of mine makes a request, I always give to that child what he or she would have asked for if they knew what I know. That means cancer can be a blessing. That means God can take even what man is meant for evil and turn it for good. I get it. I understand that some of you, this is hard to realize, but you're thinking temporally. You're thinking this life. You're thinking this time, but God sees more than you see. God sees eternally. God's vision is beyond your understanding and your concept. And if you were to know everything that he knows, and when you do know on the other side of glory, you'll say, man, I would have asked for that too. I know. I know. That's a learned thing, guys. I don't expect some of you in here to be like, yep, that's great. Amen. To wrestle with that. But that's what, I mean, if you can't believe that, then you might as well not be a believer. (laughs) I mean, that's the key. We have a hope in glory. We look to a future. If you ain't got no hope, Paul says that you might as well go out and just party, live it up. Break all the rules. What are you doing here? But if you believe in the sovereignty, the providential sovereignty of God, who's working all things out for your good, that even when it's not what you want, or it's not going how you thought it would go, or it's causing you deep anxiety and fear, you're able to rest and give thanks to God, knowing that whatever he's allowing to happen, in the perspective of eternity, it's for your good. That's hard though. That, that's, you see that? That's the belief right there. We gotta believe that we believe that. I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. But that's where trusting in a beautiful savior is. Is God good? I'm going to finish here. You know how God is good? Right? You can't believe what I just said unless you believe God is good. You with me? And so the question is, well, how do I know that God's good? Well, look at Christ. Look at Jesus. He's God in the flesh. And look at his love. Look at how he was hung, slaughtered, And look at how he took upon himself the wrath that you deserve. He's so good. He's so good that he would sacrifice himself so that you would live. How do I know that God's good? Well, look at the son. And the son in his ultimate act of cross of love has demonstrated his goodness to you. How do I know that bad things are for my good? Look at the cross. Nobody would ever have thought that's a great thing. Nobody aside from Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Spirit will look at that and say, man, that must be great. Let's that happen. And so the the worst thing that could ever happen, a man tortured and tormented who did no wrong, innocent, God in the flesh, hung, the ugliest, gruesome, naked shame that could happen, the greatest thing. Who would have thought that the ugly thing would be the good thing? Only those who think with eternity in mind. But you got to believe that's the wrestle. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And so in a moment, we're going to respond, singing some songs of praise, but feel free to wrestle with that tension. Do you believe that?
That's the tension. Do you believe that God is good? And if you're having trouble, just look at his son. And so let us look at the son together and behold his glory as we respond in worship and then I'll come back and pray.